God still has a heart that stands all day long with a genuine openness, inviting, pleading for sinners to come. Turn, repent. Listen, God is still the same God. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Are you an enemy of God, or are you a son or daughter of His family? Hello again, I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom concludes his current series in Romans 9 and 10. He has part 14 of a series titled, Human Responsibility. It may surprise you to think that you could be God's enemy. But every human's responsibility is to repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And according to Scripture, every human will be accountable to God based on their response. Romans chapter 10 describes the gospel of Jesus Christ as an invitation to become part of God's family and a command to obey the God of the universe. For the person who does, they can rest in the wonderful and blessed assurance they're no longer God's enemy no longer under his wrath, but rather an adopted son or daughter into his family. Let's join Tom right now on The Word Unleashed. A second common common excuse for not believing is, I don't understand. I don't understand, verses 19 and 20. Verse 19, but I say, here's this question again, introducing this idea, this excuse, but I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? Now notice Paul uses the word Israel and makes it clear that's who we're talking about here in this paragraph with an application beyond them to all who hear and don't believe. The word know is used in the sense of understanding. It's possible to hear something in a superficial way and not genuinely understand it. And so maybe that's why the Jews haven't believed. Maybe they heard it, but but they didn't really get it. They didn't really understand it. Well, Paul rejects this excuse as well. And he does so in two Old Testament passages. The first of them is in Deuteronomy 32, 21. Notice what he writes in verse 19. First, Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. This is from the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32, in which he rehearses God's gracious treatment of his people Israel and Israel's stubborn and sinful response to God. And in this verse, in its context, in response to Israel's idolatry, God threatened to use the Gentiles who were not his nation, who lacked an understanding of him, to anger the Jewish people and to make them jealous. Paul argues that was fulfilled in the preaching of the gospel to Gentiles. Look at chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 11. Making the Jewish people jealous was done by preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. Chapter 11, verse 11. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? Talking about the Jewish people, may it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make the Jewish people jealous. Why? 
Verse 13, I'm, I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. Verse 14, if somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. God was going to use this to bring some of his people to genuine faith. Now think about it. The Jews understood the gospel. How is this verse saying they understood the gospel? Because they understood enough about the gospel to be angered and offended by it. Why? Because it attacked their self-righteousness. Do you see the problem? Both can't be true. You can't say, I don't understand the gospel, and at the same time be angered by its message. The very fact that you're angry about it shows you understood it. So, Paul answers this excuse from the law, from Moses. Now he turns to the prophets, to a second witness, verse 20. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. This quote is from Isaiah 65, verse 1, and it's from the mouth of God himself. By the way, Isaiah 65, 1 has one other clause. Let me bring it in because it only adds additional flavor here. In that verse, here's God speaking. Here am I, here am I, I said, to a nation which did not call on my name. In this Old Testament text, Isaiah 65, 1, God dramatically depicts his grace. He reverses the roles between himself and sinners. What should be happening? Well, sinners should be humbly coming to God and offering themselves to him, right? That's what should be happening. But God does exactly the opposite. He comes humbly to sinners and offers himself to them. They didn't seek him, but he allowed himself to be found. They didn't ask for him, but he revealed himself to them. They didn't call on him, but he offered himself to them. I mean, can you imagine that last phrase in Isaiah 65.1? Can you imagine that to undeserving sinners, God says, here I am. Here I am. Paul's point is that in both of these verses, the one from Deuteronomy, the one from Isaiah here, is that the Jews not only heard the gospel, they understood it. And they understood it enough to be angered by it. So this was not a valid excuse. Again, the application is clear to today. If you're not a believer, you can't claim that you haven't heard the gospel. You haven't believed because you haven't heard. And you can't claim that I heard it, but I don't understand it. Because the gospel has profound depth to it. But in its basic tenets, it's simple to understand so that a child can understand it that you are a sinner, and that you deserve the eternal wrath of God against your sin because He is your maker, your owner, your sustainer, your king. He has every right to tell you everything to do, and you, like me, have disobeyed Him your whole life. And you deserve His justice. But God, in His love and grace, sent His only Son, His one-of-a-kind, unique Son into the world. He took on full humanity. He became everything that you are except for sin. And He lived a perfect life of obedience to God's law. The life God required of you, Jesus lived. And then, 
Jesus died the death God required of you because of your sinful life. And he died in your place to satisfy the justice of God if you will believe in him. And God raised him from the dead as evidence that he'd accepted that sacrifice. You see, that's not hard to understand. If you've heard it, you understand it. There's a third excuse that's implied in verse 21 of Romans 10. It's this it's God's fault. It's God's fault. You know, as sinners, we find it easy to blame God, frankly, for everything. People even blame God for not believing the gospel. Some people say, I haven't believed and it's God's fault because he didn't choose me. You know, they read mail that isn't theirs. They read about election and they, they, they blame God. Well, you know, the real reason I haven't believed is because God just must not have chosen me. Listen, Paul's not going to let that happen. In chapter 9, we discovered that election is the only reason that anyone is ever saved. But it is not the legitimate reason and explanation for why anyone is ever lost. Let me say that again. Election is the only reason anyone is ever saved, but it's not the reason anyone is ever lost. In fact, this entire section we're studying, from chapter 9, verse 30, through the end of chapter 10, Paul explains the reason people are lost is not God's fault, it's human responsibility. It's a self-imposed ignorance about the purpose of God's law. It's an unwillingness to abandon their own sin and, in some cases, their self-righteousness and humbly receive God's righteousness as a gift. It is a refusal to believe and obey God's gospel. If you're here this morning and you have somehow convinced yourself that the reason you haven't believed is God's fault because He hasn't chosen you, listen, you're sinning against God and even thinking that. The truth is, God says it's because you have refused to obey the clear commands of the gospel to repent and believe. There's a second way people blame God. They say it's God's fault, not only because He didn't choose me, but because He really doesn't love me and hasn't genuinely invited me. Paul's answer to this objection is to quote the next verse in Isaiah 65, verse 2. Notice Verse 21 here. But as for Israel, he says, all the day long I have stretched out my hands. I love that line because here we see the heart of God. All day long I have stretched out my hands. He has stretched out or spread out his hands. The picture is of God. Think about this. It's of God holding out his hands in an inviting or even pleading manner. That's the picture. Of course, God is a spirit. He doesn't have hands like you and I have. This is an anthropomorphism. It's a, it's a figure of speech to help us understand something that's not true about God's body. He doesn't have one, but something that's true about his heart. All day long, I have held out my hands. With Israel, God held out his hands to them as if he were a parent inviting a prodigal child to come home. And notice, he did it all day long. You ever tried to stand with your hands out? There's not a person in this room that can do it for an hour. 
God does it all the time. His hands are all day long. They're out. You see, what God is communicating about Himself is this is His constant attitude toward the Jewish people. This is His constant attitude toward all sinners. Holding out His hands in invitation, in pleading, won't you come? Won't you come? This is what Scripture teaches about the heart of God. Go back to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 18. I love these verses. Ezekiel 18. And look at verse 23. God says, Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, rather than that he should turn from his ways and live? God says, listen, I don't delight in in hurting people. I don't delight in exacting the justice that's required. I don't delight in their, their eternal death. Rather, I want them to turn and live. Go down to verse 32 of the same chapter. For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies. He's talking about now that, that death of rebellion which sends a person to eternal judgment. I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. You see God with His arms outstretched. Repent and live. Go to chapter 33 of this same, this same book. Chapter 33, verse 10. Now as for you, son of man, he's talking to Ezekiel the prophet, now as for you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, this is what I want you to tell them, thus you have spoken, saying, so here's what the people of Israel were saying, surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us. They're on us like like a stain on our souls, and we are rotting away in them. How then can we survive? You ever felt like that in your sin? Verse 11, God says to Ezekiel, say this to them. As I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? Again, you see the heart of God, outstretched arms, inviting, pleading. You see it in Christ in Matthew 23. Verse 37, when Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. Listen to this. This is Jesus' heart, reflecting the Father's heart. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. That's what I wanted. My hands outstretched. And then he says, and you were unwilling. 1 Timothy 2.4 God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. There is in God a genuine desire for that. We saw it in Ezekiel. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. By the way, this doesn't conflict with election. They relate to each other. God still has a heart that stands all day long with a genuine openness, inviting, pleading for sinners to come. Turn, repent. Listen, God is still the same God. I can tell you on the authority of the Scripture because there are those in Scripture who were God's enemies, who we don't believe ever came to faith, who it was said of them, God loved them. 
If you're here today and you're still God's enemy, he loves you. He loves you. If you're not a true follower, a true disciple of Jesus Christ, the gospel is God's genuine invitation to you. God still holds out his hands just as he did in Christ. In fact, listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. Paul says, we are ambassadors for Christ. We're representing Christ. Now listen to this. It's as though God were making an appeal, a pleading through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Paul says, on behalf of Christ, we beg people to be reconciled to God. God stands all day long with his arms spread, inviting, pleading. The Bible ends, Revelation twenty-two seventeen, 17, with the words, the Spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. God's arms still open, spread all day long. Listen, don't blame your refusal to obey and believe the gospel on God. That's just an excuse. Charles Hodge writes, God has extended wide his arms and urged men frequently and long to return to his love, and it is only those who refuse that he finally rejects. It's just an excuse. So those are the common excuses why people don't believe. But then Paul goes on at the end of verse 21 to explain the real reasons. Here are the real reasons that the Jewish people and others who hear the gospel don't believe it. It's not that they haven't heard. It's not that they haven't understood the message. It's not somehow God's fault. The real reasons they haven't obeyed the gospel are in verse 21. Notice, but as for Israel, he says, all the day long I have stretched out my hands, there's God, there's the heart of God, to a disobedient and obstinate people. There are the issues. Disobedient. How is a person who doesn't believe the gospel disobedient? Well, he's disobedient to God. Romans 2.8 says, there are those who do not obey God's truth. They're disobedient to the commands of the gospel to repent and believe. That's why 1 Thessalonians 1 verses 7 and 8 says when Jesus comes back at the second coming, he's going to deal out retribution to those, listen to this, who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They're disobedient even to the Son of God. John 3 36 says, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him disobedient. There's the answer to why people who hear the gospel don't believe. The other word he uses at the end of verse 21 is obstinate. The Greek word literally means to speak against, to oppose, to contradict. In Titus 2.9, it's translated as argumentative. They reject and they argue with God's gracious invitation and command in the gospel. Tragically, this is the response of sinners to the constantly outstretched arms of our gracious God, to what one author calls the patient grief of God the evangelist. The patient grief of God the evangelist. 
By the way, you say, well, how does all this human responsibility stuff, how does it connect with election in chapter 9? Here's why election was necessary for anyone to be saved. As we sang just a few minutes ago in the song, if he had not loved me first, I would refuse him still. My response naturally, your response naturally to the outstretched arms of God, inviting, pleading, turn, repent, live, our response is disobedience and rebellion. And the only way anyone is ever saved is if God interjects into that and graciously chooses those He will draw to Himself and make His own. If you're not a Christian, you have heard the gospel, and yet you've still not believed. God says, this is not me, your, your argument's not with me here. God says the reason is just like with the Jews of the first century. It's because you are disobedient to Him and you are rebellious against him. He is standing still with his arms spread. In the parable of the prodigal son, the son decides, you remember, to repent and go home after he's, after he's spent everything, as the text says, with loose living. He's done everything a young man might want to do, every kind of sin he's pursued. In fact, his older brother accusing, accuses him of having spent his fortune on prostitutes. But when it's all done and he's at the very bottom of the bottom, he decides he's going to go home. He decides to repent and return home, but, but he wondered how the Father would receive him. Have you ever wondered that? Maybe you're here this morning and the prodigal looks a lot like you. Have you ever wondered how God would receive you? Well, you don't have to wonder because Jesus tells us exactly how he will receive you. Turn to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, here's how he'll respond. Verse 20. Luke 15, verse 20, the prodigal got up from the pig pen, from his utter abject poverty brought on by his terrible lifestyle, and he came to his father. The father, of course, in this parable represents God. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Do you understand? This is God. If He's, he's got his arms open wide and in an, an open invitation, pleading. And if you will leave your sin and rebellion and return and come to him, he will run to meet you. That's the kind of gracious God that we have. His arms are open still. Let's pray together. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed. And that concludes our current series titled Human Responsibility. Tom will begin a new series on our next program. Do join us then. 
Well, Tom, is there any other way of salvation apart from the biblical gospel of Jesus Christ? Absolutely not. In fact, the entire Bible teaches us that there is only one way of salvation, and it is through Jesus Christ our Lord. We're introduced to the Redeemer who would come in Genesis chapter 3, and as the story of the Scripture unfolds, it's clear that this salvation that's provided in Jesus Christ can never be earned by good works, by good deeds, by our own merit, by our humanitarian efforts, or even our faithful practice of some religious system. Salvation is a gift that is given by God's grace through faith in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. Only through his life, his death, and his resurrection can anyone, you or me, be rescued from our sins. And God is inviting and even commanding all people everywhere to believe that message. It's the only hope of salvation that exists anywhere in the world. Thanks, Tom. And friend, does the Bible speak about the government and structure of the church? In his book, A Biblical Case for Elder Rule, Tom Pennington presents in-depth evidence from Scripture to show that God intends every local church to be governed by a plurality of godly men. In an age where a biblical ecclesiology is often neglected, it is critical to recapture what the Bible teaches about the structure of the church. Purchase your copy of Tom's book, A Biblical Case for Elder Rule, today at thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.